We open the Holy Scriptures to Genesis chapter 18. We'll read together the first 15 verses, verses 1 through 15 of Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre. And he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if thou, or if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray thee, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on. For therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do, as thou hast said. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good, and gave it unto a young man, and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. Here we end our reading of the Holy Scriptures. We turn in the Psalter to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 8, found on page 6 and 7. Beginning at question 24, how are these articles, that is the articles of the Apostles' Creed, divided into three parts? The first is of God the Father and our creation, the second of God the Son and our redemption, the third of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. Since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Because God hath so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. Beloved in the Lord, near the end of Lord's Day 7, the Catechism set before us a very important question. What is necessary for a Christian to believe? And then Lord's Day 7 laid out the fundamentals of the Christian faith, really the core doctrines of the whole Bible which are summarized in the apostolic creed. Now Lord's Day 8 picks up on that point and indicates to us that the very arrangement of the Apostles' Creed teaches us fundamental doctrine. The Apostles' Creed is not a string of twelve articles haphazardly assembled, but 
is arranged according to one of the most fundamental truths revealed in the Bible, namely the truth of the Holy Trinity. So that the first section of the Creed is of God the Father. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then the second and fullest section of the Creed is arranged according to God the Son and His work. And in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. And then follows several articles addressing the main works of Christ. And then the Creed concludes with God the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit. We believe one God, one God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God. And thus the Catechism points out that one of the most foundational truths of the Christian religion is the truth of the Holy Trinity. And so important is this truth of the Trinity that if someone does not believe the truth of the Trinity, they do not know the one true God. So fundamental is this truth to the knowledge of the true God. So fundamental is this truth to the content of true saving faith. Thus, one of the ancient creeds of the church The Athanasian Creed does not overstate the case when it declares that the Trinity is the sum of the Catholic faith. Now we understand that belief in the Trinity does not mean fully comprehending it. No human being ever can fully comprehend the depths of this truth revealed in the scriptures. Nor is a full comprehension of the mystery of the Trinity necessary for Saving faith. Rather, saving faith knows the truth of the Trinity as God has revealed it in the Bible. Insofar as our creaturely capacity can admit of. Many believers who have very simple faith. A very basic understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. And yet, that understanding is given by God. And so while we affirm that this is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith... Without which, one does not know the one true God. We must be careful. Remembering that even the simplest of God-worked faith is genuine faith. Even if that faith is limited in its intellectual grasp of the doctrines of Scripture. We are not saved by intellectual apprehension of the truth. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. True faith has content, yes, but even simple faith is true faith. But God has given us the gift of His Word, the riches of revelation concerning Himself. And so our faith is a hungry faith that desires to grow in knowledge, that desires to understand God more and more deeply. And so we turn back once again to Lord's Day 8 to study anew the deep and marvelous truth of the Trinity with the prayer that God may Increase our understanding and deepen our knowledge of Him as the triune God. So our theme this morning is the Holy Trinity. That is the doctrine of Lord's Day 8. The Holy Trinity. We're going to simply work through the main parts of this doctrine as outlined in Lord's Day 8. We start with His essence. We look at the essence of the one true God. Secondly, His persons. And then finally, his works, and how the works of God connect to the doctrine of the Trinity. Foundational to the Christian faith is the truth that there is only one God. There is one true and living God, and everything else and everyone else who would presume to take upon themselves the name God, are counterfeit gods. There is one true God. And that's what question and answer 25 is getting at when it says, there is but one only divine essence. The divine essence is a theological term for the being of God. When we speak about God's essence or God's being, those two terms, essence and being, are synonyms. They refer to the same thing. 
God's essence is who God is in himself. Who God is at heart, if we can speak that way. God's essence is all that belongs to being God. It refers to his divinity, who he is, that sets him apart from every other being that exists. This term, essence, is used in the scriptures... But it's used, we'll we'll find it this way, as Godhead. When you run it into the term Godhead in the Bible, Godhead refers to the essence or very being of God. So a few scriptural examples. In Acts 17 verse 29, the Apostle Paul is in Athens, that great center of Greek culture and philosophy. And he is preaching the gospel to the people of Athens and even to many of the philosophers who resorted to Mars Hill to discuss questions and various thoughts in philosophy. And the Apostle Paul, in his preaching, says this in verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by the art. Graven by art and man's device. Paul there is teaching that the being of God is completely unlike all that is created. All that is man-made. And that's a theological principle that then stands behind the second commandment of God's law. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Why? Because the essence, the being of God is so infinitely exalted over the creature It cannot be likened unto the creature. God is infinite. And as soon as you make an image or try to create some shape to represent God, you are misrepresenting him. You cannot take the infinite God and shoehorn him into some creature box and say that this image or this sculpture or this work of man's art adequately expresses the truth of who God is. Because of the immensity and the infinite Nature of God. Every idol. Every sculpture. Every piece of artwork. Every craftsman's depiction of God. Is a teacher of lies. As Habakkuk says. The being of God. Cannot be represented. Another passage in the New Testament. Romans 1 verse 20. Where the Apostle Paul says this. For the invisible things of him. From the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. Here the apostle explains that we can catch a glimpse of God's very being by looking at the works of his hands. Though God is invisible... Inherently invisible, the divine essence cannot be seen with the eyes of the flesh. Yet we can see something of the grandeur, the glory, the power of the divine being when we look at the works of his hands. All of creation, the wonder of the natural order of all things created from the small universe, you might say, of the human body to the expansive universe That surrounds us. All of it God has made. And there we catch a glimpse of who God is. His eternal power and Godhead. And so we see again that the being. The essence of God is wholly other. That is it is entirely and utterly unlike anything else that exists. You go back to the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning God created the heavens. And the earth. And there you see the great separation, the great difference that exists between God and everything else that is. There is God, and then there is everything else. There is the Creator, and there is the created. There is the independent one, and there are dependent creatures. There is the infinite and eternal God, and there is the space bound and time bound creation that He made. There is an infinite and unbridgeable chasm of being between God the Creator and all other beings which He has made and to which He gives life and existence. 
So that means God in his essence is incomprehensible. You can't fully wrap your mind about, around him because he is infinite. And the small human mind which is finite and limited in its powers and its understanding can never fully grasp or plumb the depths of the infinite being of God. He is incomprehensible. But that doesn't mean that he is unknowable. God is knowable because God reveals himself as The Catechism points out, God has so revealed himself in his word, especially, but as Romans 1.20 told us, also in the creation. Special revelation, general revelation. God shows us himself, and by means of his revelation, we are able to obtain true and accurate knowledge of God, though limited knowledge, because we are creatures. And we are limited. And we can only grasp so much of the infinite God. Thus, there will never be a time when you or I will be able to say, Now I know everything there is to know about God. The being of God is an inexhaustible fountain with inexhaustible depths. You can never get to the bottom of who God is. He's God. He's God. That's the divine essence. But now, the catechism is focusing our attention on this particular truth concerning the immense and infinite essence of God. That there is only one divine essence. There is only one divine being. There is only one who is God. Thus the great truth which the scriptures proclaim from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. The great truth that was engraved upon the hearts of the church throughout the ages. The truth that the Israelite children learned From their earliest days, such as we find in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There is only one God, the Creator. Who has revealed Himself and given Himself names. God, Lord, Jehovah, Father, Good Shepherd. All of the rest that we find throughout the Scriptures. One God. Though mankind may use the word God to describe a category in man's mind, God, and there are many different things that men may put in that category, that's idolatry, God really isn't a category. God is God. And if you want to speak of God is a category. God is a category all by himself. Nothing else goes in that category with him. Nothing else can be likened unto him as the prophet Isaiah teaches in chapter 40. God is all by himself as God. And none can even get close to what he is and who he is in himself. This is a foundational part of the Christian confession and the Christian religion. That there is only one God. It's the truth that stands behind the Ten Commandments that we read this morning. Who has the right to give the law that governs your life? Who has the right to require complete obedience from you and me? The one only true and living God. The lawgiver who created this world and who fashioned each and every one of us for himself. The lawgiver alone has the right to give his law. And thus the Ten Commandments come to us with the authority of the one only true and living God. Think of how the Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God. 
There is no other. And that's the first commandment, which really is the fountainhead of true, the true Christian life, of all true morality. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But thou shalt worship and adore and serve the one true and living God. No other may be set above him or beside him. None other should be trusted in for the things that we need for body and soul. Besides the one true and living God. This one God deserves the entire allegiance of his people. And so you see that the doctrine that God is one. And that there is one God is not just a theological postulate. It's a very, very practical truth. In our lives we need a focus. In our lives, we need something to live for. Everyone would acknowledge that. A life without direction, a life without purpose, a life that doesn't have focus is miserable. Here's the focus. Here's the direction. Here's the purpose. The one focus, purpose, and direction. The one true and living God. Living for Him. Worshipping Him. Serving Him. Obeying His will for my life. Having His word determine the direction for my life. God is all. The one true and living God. And so you see this truth of the oneness of God is a a unifying principle for the whole Christian life. The question that we are to ask in every area of our lives and all of our decisions and all that we do everywhere we go is... Does this bring glory to the one God? Is this in obedience to the will of the one God? Who is worthy of my wholehearted worship and obedience. And so, let us as Christians, by the power of the Spirit... Remain as steadfast in confessing unashamedly this truth. There is but one God. The God of the Bible. It's an unpopular truth. It runs against the spirit of our age which promotes the ideas of pluralism and pluriformity. Pluralism is the idea that there are many gods. And that all religions have truth value to them. Pluriformity is the idea that there may be one God, but all different religions, they they have their own truth about that God. They all lead to the same God. And therefore, all of the religions of the world will benefit through cross-pollinating with each other, mixing together, appreciating the different truths that each provides. And you put them all together and you get the, the fullest concept of God. The Bible, Christian faith, stands resolutely opposed to those erroneous notions. There is one God. One God who has revealed himself in his word, the Holy Scriptures. All of the other gods of the world and all of the other religions and all of the other philosophies which can be so appealing and they are appealing because they have a touch point in our sinful human nature. All of these philosophies, religions and ways of thinking and living are designed and devised after the desires and the imagination of the fallen human heart. Of course they're going to be appealing. But they are dead ends. They are not ways to truth. There are ways that lead to ruin. There is one God who is known in one way through his revelation. And we owe him our full allegiance. But now, one of the deepest mysteries most awe-inspiring truths which this one God reveals about Himself is the truth of His persons. Yes, 
persons, plural, not singular. There is one God, not a plurality of gods, one God. And yet this one God is a plurality of persons. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. Marvelous truth that sets the Christian faith apart from every other religion you will find in the world or throughout history. This is a truth that sets apart the one true and living God from all of the counterfeit gods of human devising. Our God is the Holy Trinity. The one true God is the triune God. One God who is three distinct divine persons. As the catechism based on scripture says. There is only one divine essence. And yet the Christian speaks of and believes in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That these are three distinct divine persons. And yet these three distinct divine persons are the one only true and eternal God. To begin understanding this aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity, we have to answer the question, what's a person? We looked at what essence means. God's being is all that belongs to being God. It's what God is at heart. Belonging to God's essence are all of his attributes. But what about a person? We can understand the idea of a person by thinking about ourselves. Because God created us as persons. Yet the idea of a person is a mysterious thing. Putting to words what a person is, that's no easy task. Your person is your identity. Your person is who you are. Your person is the I that is distinct from you or them. You say I. But about others you say you or they. There is a distinction there. Your person is the subject that stands behind all of the activity of your moral rational nature. That is all of your thinking, all of your willing, all of your choosing, all of your deciding, all of your doing, all of your speaking, all of your feeling, all of your desiring, all of your experiencing. There is an I That stands behind those things. Which is the subject. The one who thinks. The one who feels. That's your person. And your person is completely distinct from every other person. Every other person sitting in the sanctuary this morning is a person but is distinct from you. And now your person is an unchanging part of your being. Think about your human nature, your body, your soul. We undergo all sorts of changes throughout the course of our life in our body and our soul. Our bodies grow and mature. Our souls experience change as well as they mature in spiritual life. But our person remains always the same. It's the seat and the root of our identity. God is a personal God. That also distinguishes the one true God from so many of the counterfeit gods that have been created by man throughout history. God is a personal God. He is not an impersonal power. He is not a force. But personal. But God is not just one person. And here's the mystery. God is three distinct divine persons. In the one being of God, there are three persons who say I, and who say you to the others. There are three divine persons who say, I am the one true God. And yet each of these three persons say to the others, you are the one true God. 
three divine persons who equally share and equally participate in that one divine essence. So that there are not three gods. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three different gods. They are the one true and living God. Because each, three, each of the three persons equally shares and participates in that one divine essence. And so the church throughout history, as she's read this truth in the scriptures, has developed theological terms to help describe this mystery. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in the first place co-essential. And co-essential means same essence. They do not have different divine essences, but they share the one divine essence. And that's how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the one God. That's how there are three divine persons who are the one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal. There's no rank among them. There is not greater authority on the part of Father, lesser authority on the part of Son, and still less authority on the part of Holy Spirit. They are equal. They are the one God. The church has spoken of the persons of the Trinity as co-eternal. We actually find a reference to that term at the end of question and answer 25. The one only true and eternal God. Meaning, one person of the Trinity is not before the, or after the others. But they are all eternal. They all share the attributes of the one only true and living God. So not three gods. One God. But there are three persons who are this one God. Three persons who are distinct. Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Yet all three persons are the one God. As we try to wrap our minds around this deep and marvelous truth, we find we run into the wall of our creaturely limitations, don't we? We can only go so far. And now when we run up against that wall, the proper response is not doubt or questioning or saying, this doesn't make sense and so I'm not going to believe it. But when we run up against the wall, that's where we stop and fall to our knees and worship. That's the response the wonder of the Trinity ought to elicit in the Christian Awe and worship. We should not expect to wrap our little creaturely minds around the infinite being of God. The fact that we cannot fully understand how the one true God is three distinct divine persons. How three distinct divine persons can equally share that one divine essence so that there is one God yet there are three persons who are that one God. We should not be surprised that we can't fully grasp it. These are the deep things of God which exceed the capacity of the human mind ever to fully understand. This is not a logical contradiction. The Trinity is not a logical contradiction. Some would say that. Some who don't want to accept this word of God and submit themselves to the word of God take a philosophical approach And they try to argue that the Trinity is a logical contradiction. But it is not. The Trinity would be a contradiction if the scriptures taught that God was one and three in the exact same sense. For example, if it was taught that God is one in being and also three in being, that would be a contradiction. But that's not the case here. God is one in essence but three in person. No contradiction. But yes, a deep mystery. Do we fall to our knees? And join the angels around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
whole earth is full of his glory. That's our response to the truth of the Trinity. So now let's, let's look at some scriptural backing for this doctrine that has been set forth now. The Trinity is a truth that was implicit in the Old Testament, meaning it was there, but it was not as clearly revealed as it is in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the truth of the Trinity shines brilliantly on the pages of Holy Scripture such that you cannot escape it. In the Old Testament, this truth was there. But it was not as evident. But when we shine the light of the New Testament back upon the Old, we see how the truth of the Trinity leaps off of so many pages in the Old Testament. And that, that's the reason we read Genesis 18. Genesis 18 is a beautiful passage about God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham. The first purpose of Genesis 18 is not to teach us the doctrine of the Trinity. And yet, when we, with the light of the New Testament, look back upon this passage, we see that truth implied here in a very real way. So let's, let's look at Genesis 18 a moment and see how the truth of the Trinity can be glimpsed. In this visit of God to Abraham on the plains of Mamre. Verse 1. And the Lord appeared unto him, Abraham, in the plains of Mamre. And he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. It's a familiar story. You children know this story. Abraham sitting at the, the entrance to his tent. It's a hot and sunny day in the land of Canaan. And as Abraham is sitting there, he sees men approaching him. And verse 1 tells us who these men were. The Lord appeared unto him. Lord in all capitals. Jehovah, the Lord. Jehovah, the one true God, appeared to Abraham. And now verse 2. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. Now that's very interesting, is it not? The text says, Jehovah appears to Abraham. And the manner in which Jehovah appears to him is three men. This is mysterious. What exactly was this appearance? It seems the most likely answer is that God sent three angels to represent him and bring his word to Abraham. One verse that would lead us to that conclusion is Hebrews 13 verse 2, where The writer to the Hebrews seems to be thinking of this Old Testament event when he gives an exhortation to the Christians that he writes to in Hebrews 13 verse 2. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So a very likely explanation of these three men who appear to Abraham is that they were three angels sent by God to bring his word. And very possibly one of those angels could have been the angel of Jehovah. You know from your study of the Old Testament, that often in the Old Testament, the angel of Jehovah, the angel of the Lord would appear and bring God's word to people. And the angel of Jehovah was the pre-incarnate Son of God, a manifestation of Christ before the incarnation. But now it's very interesting, isn't it? That God represents himself to Abraham by sending three emissaries, three angels. Why three? God does nothing without purpose. Three. 
And there is this curious interplay of one and three. Oneness and threeness throughout Genesis 18. You notice how these three men speak and act as one. They bring the same message. Sometimes Abraham addresses them all together. Sometimes the appearances he addresses addresses them individually. There's oneness and threeness here. The Lord Jehovah appears. As three. Is this a fully developed doctrine of the Trinity? No. No. But scripture interprets scripture, does it not? The New Testament sheds light on it. And what was implicit in the old becomes clear in light of the fuller revelation of the new. We see here something of the doctrine of the Trinity. The oneness of God. One God who is yet three persons. And this fits with so many other passages in the Old Testament. The one just referenced. Isaiah 6 verse 3. The seraphim around the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The Lord. One God and yet holy, holy, holy. He is the thrice holy one. Why three? There's a hint of the doctrine of the Trinity. You go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. And you see the same thing. What does God say when he made Adam and Eve? Let us make man in our own image. Us. He uses the plural. And there's more there than that. God is simply using the royal plural. The way kings would often talk. They would speak of themselves in the plural. There's more to it than that. We see there. The one God. Has a plurality of persons. And while Genesis 1. Doesn't give us a fully developed doctrine of the Trinity. Just as Genesis 18 doesn't. The light of the New Testament shines on those passages and we see from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the God who reveals himself to us in the scriptures is a triune God. One God. And yet there are three distinct divine persons who are that one God. Turn to the New Testament and look at a couple passages here and you see how this same pattern becomes all the clearer. Matthew 3, 16-17. The history of Jesus' baptism. And here again, God is represented by three who are distinct. Matthew 3, verse 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. There you have God the Son in our flesh. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. There's the third person of the Trinity. Who is pleased to appear in the form of a dove. Descending upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he comes out of the water. Indicating that The incarnate Christ was being equipped and qualified for the messianic work that he was beginning to undertake here at his baptism. And then the rest of the passage. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Who says, beloved son, God the Father, in whom I am well pleased. There you have oneness and threeness once again. Think of the baptism formula that Jesus taught the disciples to use shortly before he ascended into heaven. And he commanded that the church baptize in the name, one name, the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. One God to whom belongs that name and yet three persons who are that one God who equally share the name of God. The apostolic benediction which will close this service. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.
in that benediction, you have three who are called upon to perform the work of God. Who gives grace? Who showers saving love upon God's people? Who brings them into communion? It is the one true and living God. And yet the benediction says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. Three who are one God and perform the works of God. And that brings us to the final thing to see this morning. His work. God is one God and thus he is unified in all his works. And that's what the first question and answer of Lord's Day 8 addresses. How are these articles divided? And the answer is they're divided according to the three persons of the Trinity. The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second of God the Son and our redemption. The third of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. Now the point of that question and answer is not this. That All of the works of God are divided among the three persons such that each of the three persons has their special assignment. They do this part of God's work and the other does a different part of God's work. No, there is one God. One God who works. One God who does all his works. And that means the three persons of the Trinity, the three persons who are that one God, together perform each and every one of God's works. However, there are works of God in which one particular person of the Trinity stands on the foreground. God the Father, for example, stands in the foreground in the work of creation. God the Father speaks. And by His Word, He creates. But as we know, the Word by whom all things were made is God the Son, Jesus Christ. And as God creates by His Word, Genesis 1 tells us that the Spirit moved upon the face of the waters. You have all three persons working that work of God, and yet in creation, the Father's on the foreground. In redemption, God the Son is on the foreground. Because God the Son enters into our flesh, and in our flesh, He accomplishes that redemptive work. God the Father did not become incarnate, nor did the Holy Spirit become incarnate. The Son became incarnate. The Son died upon the cross in our flesh. Nevertheless, the Father and the Spirit are not absent from that work. It was God the Father who sent Christ into the world. It's the Holy Spirit, as Hebrews 9 verse 14 tells us, by whose power Jesus laid down his life upon the cross. Every Work of God is a Trinitarian work. The Holy Spirit, He stands on the foreground in God's work of sanctification. But the Spirit who sanctifies us is the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ who is sent by the Father. God is one in all His works. The triune God performs all His works. And so here too, let us see that this doctrine is practical. It's not abstract. The Christian life is shaped by the Trinity. The Christian life is of the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. In our prayers and in our worship, we pray to the one only true and living God. And yet we also recognize The distinct roles that each of the persons carry out. We end our prayers, for Jesus' sake, amen. Recognizing that our prayers to God only come to Him on the basis of the finished work of Christ. He is our intercessor. He is our advocate. We pray by the power and the prompting of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Prayer and worship is a Trinitarian activity. Forgiveness of sins, that chief blessing of salvation, declared to us from God the Father on the basis of the work of God the Son applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit who brings that word to us and makes it effective. The covenant life that we have with God 
is Trinitarian in its nature. Because the covenant of grace is patterned after the life that God has within Himself as the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living together in an intimate relationship of love. Our covenant life with God is of God through the Son by the power of the Spirit. The covenant life that we share together is patterned after our triune God. We are all God's children. One family. Because of the work of Christ, the Son, our elder brother, to whom we are united by the Holy Spirit who dwells in each of the members as well as in the head. All of salvation, the covenant, is Trinitarian. The more you go through the teachings of the Bible, the more and more you see the fingerprints of the Trinity everywhere. And so, the Christian faith is this, as the Athanasian Creed teaches us, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. May this truth of who God is live in our hearts and be kept at the center of our faith, cherished and taught and in no way diminished. For in this truth we find the deep things of God. And in those deep things we find inestimable riches. Amen. Our faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for revealing Thyself to us and for showing us something of Thy glorious being and persons in the doctrine of the Trinity. May we appreciate this truth. May we stand in awe before Thy glory and may we bend the knee in worship. Grant that the words that we have heard may instruct our faith that we grow in knowledge. May that growth in knowledge lead to a yet more devoted life for thy glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.